Welcome to Church at the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Um, today we're going to be in Titus 1, 10 through 16, if you'd like to turn there. And whenever you're ready, please stand for the reading of God's word. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. They are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Then they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences, consciences? Yep, are defiled. (laughs) They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are disabled, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the the word of the Lord. (laughs) Father, we just want to thank you so much for the ability to be here. We're grateful for who you are and what you've done in our lives. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears to what you have to say. Lord, ultimately, we just desire to leave here different than we came in. So, Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit to move. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. morning. I am excited that you're here. Uh, My name is Kevin. I'm the lead pastor of Church at the Well, and um, this is awesome. It is hot. Wow. Um, There's a couple of things that, um, before I get started, so... There's two pastors here and wives that are celebrating anniversaries. So Matt and Julie Love are celebrating 29 years of marriage today, which I think is awesome. And then our, our visitors from Georgia, Caleb and Mallory, are celebrating 18 years, which is awesome as well. And then I know that um, this was brought up, but this is the last day that Jensen will be serving with us. So it's the last time they'll be in church with us as their team. So if you served on Jensen for the last two months with us, would you stand? And I would just like to give you guys a great thank you for all that you've done. That's enough. Sit down. All right, we don't want to get big heads. Um, okay, so... A while ago, so three weeks ago, we started preaching through the book of Titus. Um, If you're new to church or just church at the well, maybe you are um, just trying to figure out what this Jesus thing is, just so you know, I like to preach through books of the Bible. So I say this every week. You know we're going to be in next week. You can read ahead if you like to. We just kind of go verse by verse. Um, And what's interesting about preaching through books of the Bible is oftentimes, well, never do I really say, okay, it's, it's, I'm going to gear a passage around something that's going on in our life because I never really know when it's going to fall on there, right? And so this probably wouldn't necessarily be the passage of scripture that I would have picked to celebrate baptism today, (laughs) right? However, the more I've really processed this passage and what's going on, the more I'm realizing that it's actually more fitting than I anticipated. Um, So let me catch you up. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Titus, and what's going on is, if you don't know much about Paul, he's basically a church planter. He was called by Jesus to go into the Gentile world and plant churches and declare the gospel, um, see churches come to fruition, build the body of Jesus in these local contexts. And he has this guy that he's been working with named Titus. They're in Crete at some point, 
And Paul basically goes, hey, Titus, you know, we've got all these churches that are being planted in Crete, and I've got to take off, so you're going to stick around and fix the mess. Okay? And so Titus is left in Crete. There's some things that are going on within the body that uh, Paul needs to fix. Last week, we basically looked at uh, Titus's very specific um, job in all of this was to make sure that there were appropriate individuals who were leading the church, and we call those individuals elders. And so we went over the qualifications of an elder last week and what that meant. Hopefully you prayed for your elders. Um, you understand the responsibility. Um, it's difficult. Then as he's kind of raising these men up to be elders in the church, Paul then begins to go into almost like what the opposite of an elder looks like. Now here's, this is why I say this is fitting. Um, this was a rough week. Like I had a rough week. There were a lot, there's a lot of things that went on this week. Um, there was some news that I got that, that was hard. Um, I had a, a dear friend of mine um, who is a professor at the seminary that I am a trustee and um, has a crazy story. I didn't even hardly know him, but apparently my parents went to his church and in the town that I was raised and my grandfather who I was very close to and missed dearly he died when I was in high school um, was the elder that hired him as the pastor at that church well we got to reconnect just in the last year and he died this week and it was almost like losing a grandfather again which was hard um, the heat has been brutal like I'm from Bakersfield California right where right now it's probably 115 degrees and I have acclimated, clearly, because I'm like, 98 sounds horrible. It's been difficult. It's been a hard week. And in that hard week, what I have, what I discovered about myself, I guess, is there were some frustrations that began to brew in my heart. And some of you, hopefully not in a purely sinful way, got to be around when some of those frustrations came out. Right? I'm a human being. Um, and what, what this passage was reminding me is it's, it's ultimately not the, the frustrations or the, the anger or the hurt that dictates whether or not we're, we're going to be effective in bringing glory to Jesus on a given day. It's how we handle those things, right? It's, it's human to become frustrated. It's... Jesus, in his infinite ability through the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, can take our frustrations and use them for good, and we know that. But we, as human beings, can take our frustrations and use them in sinful ways. And so maybe you had a great week, right? And so your week wasn't all that difficult, and, and it was wonderful, and but I, I have a feeling that many of you understand fully what I'm talking about. There's things that go on inside of our hearts on a daily basis, and how we respond to that dictates whether we're going to be a light for Jesus or represent him poorly. And so I, I think this passage is important because it's kind of dividing um, some of these challenges into two categories of people. Um, the first category would be individuals, I would say, who you know, have an intention of 
presenting the gospel in a way that is uh, completely false or heretical, and we'll talk about that. And then the other way is how we as Christ followers can fulfill the greatest sin that our culture say exists, right? And help the world see us like they think we are as hypocrites. And how do we avoid that? Um, and so we're just gonna dive in here, and whatever, whatever has gone on this week, I would just encourage you, this is a moment, there's gonna be some things in here where like, that doesn't feel like it applies to me, but I'm gonna ask you, like, allow the Holy Spirit to, to speak to your heart. Really, really investigate kind of what went on this week or, or what's been going on inside of you and, and how has that been playing out? How have people around you been responding? How are you impacting others, so on and so forth? And, and don't be like me, like I was this week, right? All right, here we go. Starting at verse 10 in Titus chapter 1. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and, de- and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Okay, so um, these are pretty strong words. Across the board, actually, Paul gets pretty insulting here. Now, I tell people all the time, you wanna, we want to come into church, and I don't ever want anybody to walk in here and feel comfortable. Okay, comfort is the enemy of Christianity. Okay, so we know that. I, I have, I've served at churches, I have been part of churches where it felt like what was being taught was just get as comfortable as you possibly can, and then we kind of just create this club where nothing really happens, and we don't grow, and we're not the light of the world. Right? Comfort's the enemy of Christianity. However, I want you to feel loved. The reason that, the reason I don't want you to feel comfortable is because when we get comfortable in the gospel, I think we lose sight of what's actually going on. The gospel's insulting, right? It tells every one of us that we're dirty, rotten sinners. And, you know, as a human being, nobody wants to hear that. Like, scripture is constantly reminding me that. It's also reminding me that as a dirty, rotten sinner, I am completely hopeless, but Jesus came, lived the life I was supposed to live, died the death that I deserve, rose three days later, conquering sin, Satan, and death forever, and then offers me new life in him. That's the gospel. So there's a component of the gospel that we have to constantly be wrestling with, and that is I'm a dirty, rotten sinner who needed to be saved by grace. There's motivation in that. There's the ability for us to go, wow, look at what Jesus did, because the reality is I forget. I forget. You know, for those of you, we celebrate some of you being married for long periods of time, and it's easy in a marriage, if you're not married, you'll realize like there's like this honeymoon period where everything's like, ooh, right? Like you want to tell everybody, you've got to get married. And then there comes a point and you're like, marriage is hard. This is hard. Do you know why marriage is hard? Because it's two sinful beings trying to come together in one flesh, right? So I bring all of my crap into it and and my wife brings all of her crap into it and now it's double crap, (laughs) right? And then we try to work this out together. It's hard. It's really hard. And we say in marriage, the only way to see this work is we, your, your marriage has to be grounded in the scriptures, in the gospel, right? It's, it's Jesus that becomes that common like ground foundation that we can stand on when we're not seeing eye to eye. And Jesus never changes. 
right? We have to be reminded of that, the gospel, all the time. It's not just in marriage, it's in relationships, it's in your church relationships, it's, it's in uh, raising your kids, all of this. I mean, we have this tendency to, to begin to forget who Jesus is and what he's done and start living out a gospel that isn't what we're supposed to live out because it becomes comfortable. So strong words are good. It's a good reminder. In this instance, I mean, I don't know if he's specifically talking to anyone in here, but he says he calls somebody insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. And then he ties this up to individuals that he calls the circumcision party. And so just a little bit of history, this would be the individuals who were kind of the religious elite. Okay? They were pouring, and we, you know, we talked about legalism so long for the, the series before, right? And we're, when we went through Galatians, there's, there's individuals, because of our natural human tendency, to want to believe that there must be more to the gospel than just grace. Because especially in a country like the United States where we say there is no free lunch and you don't, you have to earn what you get and you have to go after it, that goes in contrast to the grace of the gospel. So naturally we go, yeah, I get it, like Jesus died for me and I just need to put my faith and trust in him and there's this great exchange that takes place. However, there's gotta be more to it. And what was happening was this religious elite, they were, they were saddling or, or burdening the churches that they were a part of and the people that were following them with all of this other junk, right? Like, I'll give you an example. So. Uh, we're going to be celebrating baptism today, right? We have two individuals who are getting baptized, and the only qualification that is required for an individual to be baptized biblically is that they profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, personally, right? That they, they're literally saying, I understand that Jesus died for me. He is not only my Savior, but he's also my Lord. Now, what is the purpose of baptism? Baptism is a symbolic act. It's, 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 it's an outward sign of what has already taken place internally. And that's important. Jesus was baptized and he commands us to get baptized. It's, it's an opportunity when you, get, when you come to faith in Jesus to actually begin a life of obedience. Now for us, baptism's interesting because back in, and still in some countries, when you get baptized in a public setting, you're signing your death warrant. You know, back then, the individual who wrote this letter, Paul, before Jesus grabbed hold of his heart, he was going around and killing Christ followers. He believed he needed to wipe them out. He was part of this circumcision party. And do you know how he found people? He went to water. And he's like, who's walking here to publicly profess their faith in Jesus? If they're bold enough to do that, then they're probably bold enough to speak about him, therefore they need to go away. Well, in the United States, even though that does happen in some parts of the world, and if, you, if that horrifies you, do some research. Pray for those people. Okay? And it's, it doesn't happen in the United States currently. Right? So I think sometimes it can kind of take on this different meaning. Um, my wife grew up in a tradition that said, in order for you to be saved, you had to be baptized. That was a religious elite burdening individuals outside of the grace and the gospel of Jesus to perform. 
here's the thing. There's nothing, baptism's a good thing. Serving's a good thing. Being selfless is a good thing. Giving is a good thing. But when it gets tied to your salvation in Jesus, it is no longer by faith alone. Even good works tied to the gospel for salvation is heresy. And what was happening here is Paul calls these people out. He's saying, look, the gospel's about Jesus and Jesus alone. It has nothing to do with you. Nothing. Yeah. You can't earn this. So, so why, are we, why are we tying individuals and their work to something that Jesus already accomplished? Why are we, in his instance, basically saying leading people astray? Right? Because if there's any ounce of works in your faith for your salvation, then you do have the ability to say, look what I've done. And it creates arrogance. So what ends up happening with these individuals who began to put these religious kind of laws on, on people and say that, okay, we're not gonna serve out of gratitude for what Jesus has done or out of a desire to be a light in the world. We're gonna serve because in those moments that, can, that, that helps you get saved. You end up creating a church that is very arrogant in what it's doing. But scripture makes it very clear, if we're gonna boast in anything, we boast in the grace of Jesus and Jesus alone. Some of you may have grown up in traditions like this, where, you know, in a practical sense, what it ends up doing is creating a lot of guilt. Christ followers are, through the lens of the gospel, are supposed to look at guilt a little bit differently, right? Holy Spirit can use guilt in our life to convict us that what we're doing is sinful but that's supposed to be the end of the guilt. It's, it's, a, it's a reminder that, hey, what I'm participating in isn't good. So the Holy Spirit will convict our hearts in certain ways to say, and that can come across as guilt, but we don't live in guilt as Christ followers. If we're constantly living in guilt after we've repented, then we don't understand the gospel. Guilt has this kind of one, one aspect in the life of a Christ follower. It's to, like I said, convict us of sin so that we repent, and when we repent, we say, it's done. Jesus died for that. It's finished. I have the power and the grace of the Holy Spirit. Repentance just means to turn and walk away, but we don't just walk away. We actually turn and walk toward what? Christ. And you know what he does? Welcome, you're here. I don't, I, a religion that grounds itself in the motivation of guilt is not a religion that's grounded in the gospel. And Paul calls that out. You know, I, I think there comes a point where, like if you leave here today and you're feeling guilty, I'm hoping that's, that's between you and the Holy Spirit, right? And you need to deal with that. But what I'm going to encourage you with is that needs to end. Our lives aren't defined by guilt. They're defined by repentance in Christ. They're defined by new life in Christ. So Paul calls this out. 
This isn't what we're supposed to do. And he, he basically c- continues by saying in verse 11, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. I mean, he's literally saying, these people are wrong. They're heretics. They're misrepresenting God. Now, he's using these strong words, I'm using those strong words, and frankly, those strong words need to be used more often than they're being used. Christ followers need to be a little bit more bold in calling out what isn't correct. We need to be the types of individuals who understand the gospel, and when we see somebody living, claiming to know Jesus, but living contrary to that, It's our job to present truth. There's a freedom in it. You know, why would, how do we love individuals whose life are defined by guilt by just letting them feel guilty all the time? Maybe it would be better to actually explain the gospel to them in all reality and take them to the scriptures and say, this isn't what your life has to be defined by. Culture has a tendency to create fear against truth. And I love that Paul calls this out so boldly. Verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This is a quote. Uh, okay, um, this is a tactic that every teacher uses at some point, right? Um, if you've been married very long or been a parent, this is a tactic that you use. You'll use people's words against them, right? It's smart. Wait, you said this, but you're doing that, right? Or you said this, but now you're saying something completely different. Everyone uses this. And I think Paul, what he's doing is he's taking a philosopher. This was probably satire. I would imagine since this guy was a Cretan, right, that he's writing like, oh, we're all liars and evildoers. And now Paul's quoting him. So there's a moment (coughs) here where this may be coming across as like, wow, this is supposed to be funny. But what Paul follows it with is pretty heart-wrenching. So he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then he says, this testimony is true. (laughs) Okay, write that in the paper today, right? Like, you say something like that on social media, you're gonna get crucified, right? So I wanna kind of characterize this because I think that we can look at a statement like this and go, wow, Paul, like that was... That was bold. Those were some like intense words. Or man, you're really classifying a certain group of people, right? Now, stereotyping. I don't think that's what's happening here. I mean, Paul's using a quote that he didn't quote, but what he's ultimately saying is, the reason that we can say that this is true is because all of mankind are dirty, rotten sinners. So left to our own vices, left to our own humanity, we will ultimately destroy ourselves. 
It's phenomenal how silly it gets. We, I mean, I, we talked about a little bit about this a couple weeks ago, right? Where, and I won't give a whole lot of examples, but think about things in your life that hurt you that you still do. I mean, every time I do this, I get in trouble. Or every time I do this, I seem to cause problems. Or every time I do this, I get sick. Or every time I do this, I hurt people. And what happens? We just do it again. We don't learn. Ultimately, our human nature is to destroy ourselves because we desire sin so much. And what Paul's doing is he's pointing that out. It's not just about this group of people. The reality is that poet in his satire was describing humanity as a whole. We are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. We are. Um, anybody ever seen the movie WALL-E? If you haven't, it's pretty interesting. But there's a message there, right? I mean, it's fascinating to watch what mankind has become when they're just left unchecked, right? Um, and what I found so like, ridiculously fascinating about that movie, if you haven't seen it, watch it. It's interesting, weird, but interesting. It's not only do they create this like, mess of a world, but then they don't even take the responsibility of cleaning it up. They, they want somebody else to do that. Right? I mean, it, it's such a great analogy for what Paul would be saying here. We, we're a mess. And we know it, and we stay in the mess. It's, it's interesting. Paul says, he finishes this verse by saying, Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths, and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. I was raised in a, Christ, well, a Christian home, and I accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior when I was in third grade at a Christian school in a chapel, and some of you have heard this before. So I believe that in that moment that I sincerely understood the gospel, but I had no idea how to apply it. Zero. I knew who Jesus was, and I knew what he did for me, and I professed that. But how a third grader applies that to a world that is completely sin-cursed is, is impossible, right? So you go through this sanctification process. Regardless of when you come to Jesus, you realize that now I'm looking at the world from a bit of a different lens, and I'm looking at my own heart from a bit of a different lens, and what I see I don't like, and I've got to start making these changes because the way I've been living aren't consistent with my claims that the gospel is true. And we, in, in the Christian world, we call this process sanctification, which literally just means being set apart, but it's a slow process. You know, I, in my life, I have major victories where I go, man, I used to really struggle with this, but by the grace of God, over time, that's not even a temptation anymore. And then I also have other things in my life where it's like, I want that to go away, and by the grace of God, I keep repenting over these things, but ultimately, it is just, I'm not there yet, right? And I'm being sanctified continuously. The, I, I, I always define sanctification in a very simple way to say our goal as Christ followers should be that we desire to go to bed knowing Jesus better than we woke up that morning. 
That's sanctification. Okay? So when I think about like my life, I, I, was, I was thinking about a conversation I had with my grandfather, and I told you why. And one of the things I told him, so I'm searching, I'm a high school student, I understand who Jesus is, but there was this kind of postmodern culture that was beginning to infect everything around me as a young guy. And what that was saying was there really is no truth. And what's true for you might be true for you, but what's true for me is true for me. And as I began to process that, and I guess somewhat adopt it into my way of thinking around the gospel. I remember having a conversation with my grandfather and looking at other religions and going, grandfather, isn't it possible that in this culture it's Jesus, but in that culture it's something else? Like, wouldn't that make sense? Because if I was gonna go save the world, I wouldn't just do one standard for all people. I'd be like, they don't understand that, so let's go this route, right? I mean, really, when you hear the gospel for one of the first times, if you're really honest with yourself, you're like, that's a really weird way to save the world, <laughs> right? Like, I wouldn't come up with that. There's other things I would do, so thank God we're not God, right? But I remember asking the question, and we went through this discussion, and he was awesome, and, and took me to scripture, and re-solidified everything, but culture can cause us to kind of doubt a little bit, right? And what ends up happening within the body is we can begin to take these cultural ideas, sometimes we'll reject them and say, well, that's not biblical. Other times we go, that sounds really pleasant. Wow, wouldn't it be easier if we could just buy into that? And over time, we begin to justify little things within the culture that begin to be added to the gospel that we claim we believe. And when we do that, little compromises start to step in. When they really in fact in infect us, we can actually start living out things that are antithetical to the gospel or opposite to the gospel and start representing Jesus in a way that isn't accurate. And now we're in big trouble. Because there's really no difference between that and the religious elite who are putting laws on individuals. It's still heresy. We're still mis misrepresenting Jesus. There's several kind of major areas of culture, right? So if you, you know if you live in Boston, you know that the religion here is secular humanism right? It's, if you've been in church world or you study history, you know that what, what it looks like here is we, you know, this is like modern day Babylon, right? It's I, I am and there is no other. You know, you worship yourself, your own ideas, your own opinions, your own desires. And ultimately what happens is we become our own little G-gods, and when, that, when we do that, then we develop our own truth, our own ideas, our own understanding of why we're here, why, you know, have I been created? I don't know, but if God exists, then he doesn't care. So it's up, for, it's up to me to do it. If God exists, since he won't, I will, kind of a mentality. And pretty soon what comes in, in play is you begin to create your own religion, your own truth, your own belief system, 
and then you hold yourself to that standard instead of the standard of the perfection of Christ. What ends up justifying is instead of comparing ourselves to perfection of Jesus, we begin to compare ourselves to others. And when sin begins to compare itself to sin, in our minds, we will always win out. Because I look at every one of you, I'm like, you're wasting more sinful than me, right? And you do the same thing. I mean, and if, if you find somebody where you go, wow, that, their, their holiness in Christ is making me uncomfortable, then you'll stop looking at them and you'll look at the person that's a big mess, right? My dad used to say, like, man, our family's a mess right now, so we just need to go to a place where there's families that are a worse mess and then we'll feel great, right? Because in comparison, this is good. Secular humanism is a big trap. And it's, it's everywhere, right? I think the other major one that we see in kind of our culture is this adaptation, this religious heresy where we're adding things to the gospel consistently. Um, secular humanism is decently easy to evaluate. We can see it in ourselves, we can see it in others. This other one is difficult. So if you're here today and you have accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, however long you've been working with him, I just want you to take a second and ask yourself, what have you added to the gospel? One of the ways you'll know is what you add to the gospel you put on as expectations for other Christ followers to also add. So if you need motivation in figuring out what it is that maybe you've added, what are you burdening others, even if it's just in your own mind, with what they need to do to be an individual who's gospeled. We set all of these standards, oftentimes in Christian heresy or gospel heresy, right? We'll set expectations on others that we can't possibly do. And then we judge them for it or disappointed by them constantly. How can you not do this? How can you not feel this way? I think that what I'm learning over time is what Paul's really describing here for us as Christ followers is a very practical understanding of this sanctification process because I think it's a constant just living in life and making sure that the gospel is paramount and nothing is added to it. It's a repurification of the gospel on a daily basis in our life. Because every time we add something to it in our life, we take on a burden that, re that causes us unnecessary suffering and typically they're burdens the Lord hasn't even asked us to carry. And then we end up putting those burdens on others. And now we're not representing Jesus at all. One of the things that we as Christ followers should be is we allow the gospel to release us of those burdens. We sing about it. The battle's yours, right? 
I mean, we've talked about suffering before. There's unnecessary suffering and necessary suffering. We're constantly, unnecessary suffering is the things that we bring upon ourselves, right? Or others bring upon us. But a lot of our unnecessary suffering is the burden that we feel in adding things to our gospel, and that can be for a whole lot of different reasons, right? One example, if you, you know, we, we say, well, God is Father. If you are projecting your horrible earthly father's image onto God, that will impact you. Right? So how do you fix that so that it's not a burden? You read this. And you realize that my definition of a father looks completely different than the way God describes himself as a father. And you choose to believe this one. How do you do that? Because you know that you live in a sin-cursed world, in sin-cursed bodies, and everyone's a mess. Therefore, my, my understanding of fatherhood from my father I already know is imperfect. And the same for my kids, right? Don't, don't project me as a father onto God as a father. Because you won't get it. It's often difficult for us to help others eliminate the things that they've added to the gospel when we're adding things ourselves. So that's what I'm saying. We have to come back to kind of that purity of the gospel. What does Jesus say about me? You're a dirty, rotten sinner who needed to be saved, and you're loved, and you have new life in me, and I've given you the gift of the Holy Spirit who has the same power that raised me from the dead to provide you grace to accomplish that which I have for you so that you represent me well. The privileges that we've been given as dirty, rotten sinners saved by grace are phenomenal. You get to represent Jesus to a lost world. We were doing doctrine class these last six weeks and one of the things I said is when we talk about doctrine, everybody wants to go to the negative end of the doctrine. Why? Why does God have to do it that way? And I'm like, yeah, but because he does it that way, you get this. Like, why are we always swinging that to the negative side? In Christ, you know what you've been given? I mean, there's, there's so many things in Scripture. So the chains have been removed. You're, you're no longer a slave to sin. You're, you're, you're forgiven. The, the Holy Spirit enters you. You have reconciliation to your creator. You know what you've been created for. He gives you purpose. You walk with your creator in a personal relationship any moment that you want. You have access to the king of kings. You're adopted into a family. You're a prince or a princess. You're given eternal life to be able to be with Jesus forever. He commissions you and gives you purpose and a job on this planet. He gives you the ability to impact others' lives, not in a temporal way, but in an eternal way. He allows us to participate in his plan of saving people. He, he does crazy things that we get to witness that others that don't know him don't even understand. He puts us in a position where we're actually challenged instead of bored. I, 
<laughs> we, we talked about this with some of the Gen Senders yesterday. Like, I think one of the worst things a Christ follower could ever say is, I'm bored. I don't get that. Like, we've been given way too much privilege to be bored. Boredom should never be a thing for us. We got work to do, and we get to do it, right? And then even in those moments when we're like, well, I feel like I don't have work to do, then he gives us the peace of rest. And then we go, oh, I'm gonna throw that gift aside and say I'm bored. We need to be real with ourselves and figure out what it is that we're adding for us, what it is what we're adding for others, and begin to purify that so that we can be effective. Christ followers filled with joy. I, one of my, my things this week is I was reminded that the joy of the Lord is my strength. The opposite of that is also true. If I don't have joy in the Lord, I also have no strength. If I'm not joyful in the gospel, I'm weak. I can't handle anything. If I'm joyful in the gospel, it's keeping my mind on Jesus and I I'm, I'm have this attitude of gratitude regardless of the circumstances. And that is the ultimate, the ultimate source of grace in our life and it allows me the strength to get through anything in a way that honors him and glorifies him and then brings me more joy. What a cool cycle. Paul moves on and talks about this a little bit. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. I, obviously, we need to break this down a little bit because if you just, if what you heard was to the pure, so if I'm saved, everything's, everything's great, everything's pure, I can do whatever I want, you just mi- you've missed it, but I get it. Okay, so this was actually often misinterpreted um, there's a, a, it still exists today. Back then we called it Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a form of secular humanism where it was all about indulgences, right? Not indulgences like from the Catholic view, indulgences like I'm going to, I want everything. I'm gonna indulge myself in everything, okay? And so like there's passages of scripture where they would actually quote, well, the, this was their logic in Gnosticism. Stomach was created to hold food. Therefore, it needs to hold as much food as possible. So I indulge as much as I want because that's what it was created for, okay? Now, under that logic, pick something else. That's not stomach. Parents, you're with me, okay? Whatever you apply that logic to that's constantly giving you the freedom to indulge in whatever you want, as much as you want, whenever you want to do it, that's when we we fall into this realm of what they would call Gnosticism, right? So we have to understand when he's saying, to the pure, all things are pure. The key component of this whole thing is understanding, well, who are the pure and what does that mean? The pure are the individuals who have accepted Christ as as Jesus, but are actually applying that gospel to every moment that goes on in their heart, that goes on in their circumstances, that goes on in their life. See, I think the big 
The big issue for me growing up when I said that, okay, I came to faith in Jesus, that was great. So it was almost like a fire insurance component. What appealed to me as a third grader is, even though I wasn't all that bright, okay, I know someday I'm gonna die because I have seen death and I don't want to die, and that was the appeal, right? What the appeal wasn't is, Kevin, you're already dead and you can start living now. That, as I've gotten older and understanding how the gospel applies, the gospel begins the moment, like the gospel it begins to impact my life the moment that I put my faith and trust in Jesus. That moment of salvation, I'm, you are, we are gifted to apply the gospel to every area of our life. Every area. So we're constantly gospeling ourselves. What is the church for? The church is here so we can gospel each other and encourage each other to gospel themselves. So every time we're going through something, it should be like, man, this is really hard. What does the gospel say about this? How do I gospel myself through this? How do I apply the gospel and its joy and life to the current circumstances I'm going through? Because it may feel like death in the circumstance, but I'm living in Christ. So I don't bring death, more death to the circumstance. I'm supposed to bring life to that circumstance. Imagine. Picture this, picture a church, <laughs> I don't know, this one. If every Christ follower actually said, I'm going to bring gospel life into every circumstance that I live, instead of more death. I'm gonna insert the joy of Christ into the circumstance, instead of the complaining. Instead of using what I believe is my spiritual gift of complaining, I'm going to use the spiritual gift of joy. Yeah. It changes everything. Would that, would, a church that does that, would that impact this community? Oh, yeah. You'd blow people's minds. They'd be like, I don't know what that guy's drinking, but I want some. <laughs> you know that story's in scripture, right? The woman at the well? Yeah. Give me that water. I want that. See, I think the issue is we're offering water that nobody wants to drink because we don't look any different. Imagine a church that applies, that's the pure. So then you know what happens when you think that way? You take every temptation, every circumstance, every gift from the Lord, and you see it as that. And you can apply this in such great ways, right? We also get the privilege of being ministers of the gospel. So there are times when we look at something that we're free to do and we actually have the ability by his grace to say, I'm gonna give up that freedom for the sake of somebody. That's not worldly, that's godly. That's what Jesus did. We have the ability in Christ when we're thinking purely to look at all circumstances and all things and all gifts and choose when this can be effective in the gospel and when we deny it because it's even more effective in the gospel and everything starts to fall into place. It's a beautiful thing. So quick example, it's like um, I can enjoy this glass of wine by the grace of Jesus. Don't get drunk, the scripture says. 
But God, you made this. I thank you. I'm sitting across from somebody who me enjoying this glass of wine could cause them to stumble because this is a temptation for them. Lord, thank you for giving me the ability and the grace and the freedom to be able to not indulge because that's even more impactful in this situation. And now I'm gonna praise you for that. I mean, if we thought that way, everything would be different, right? Because you're not putting your own, it's not about your rights any longer, it's about your freedom. I mean, I don't wanna get all political because I am the farthest thing from political. But America doesn't celebrate its freedoms, it celebrates its rights. In fact, I'll go as far as to say it doesn't even celebrate its rights, it demands them. That's not freedom. When we do that in the gospel, it's not gospel. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. All this is simply saying is that we should be viewing circumstances, situations, freedoms differently than those who don't know Jesus and understand that they're not going to see it the same way until they do. One of the biggest issues with the American church as a whole is we attempt to regulate morality and hold people accountable to live out the gospel before they even know Christ. And do you know what that you know what happens in that? We come across as religious elite and nobody wants a part of it. You don't demand somebody to live a life that they haven't agreed to live. You can't regulate morality. I mean, historically, we've tried to do that several times. Prohibition went great. <laughs> right? I mean, that's a historical victory, obviously. You, don't, you can't regulate morality. Why? Because everybody's a dirty, rotten sinner. Nobody wants to be regulated morally. That's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus changes hearts. He takes hearts of stone. He gives them hearts of flesh. He gives them the ability to believe. They become saved. They understand who Jesus is. And then he gives them the ability by the grace of his gospel to apply that to everything and everything changes. It's beautiful. And then we go, wow, look what Jesus did. Not look what I did. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is a great verse to close on. Um, Because all it's saying ultimately is, you know what kind of tree it is by its fruit. I am the worst botanist on the planet, okay? So I have a biology degree. It's in human biology. I know a little bit about plants, but I've told you the story before. I gave my heart to a baby rose once, and it died, and that was it. I'm done. Like, it broke my heart. I was like, I, I nursed you. I took care of you. I talked to you, and you just died on me. I am done with you. So that was it. That was my horticulture experience, right? My, my wife, on the other hand, she can take something, you know, she makes cactuses bloom. I don't understand, right? So she gets it. I'm, it, it's just, it's, it's, it, It's not my thing. So I can look at a tree and I'm like, I have no idea what kind of tree that is. But if I see an apple on the tree, I can tell you it's an apple tree. 
Like, biology. <laughs> right? Church. You are defined in this world by your fruit. An apple tree can claim to be an apple tree, but if it produces oranges, it's not an apple tree. So what fruit are you producing? I mean, it's that simple. So this is where that evaluation comes in, right? Like, it assesses everything. Why am I working? Because I believe that I have to so that this God will smile on me. And I've always been blown away to think, really, you think you can impress God? That's pretty arrogant. You're like, look what I did. And he's like, yeah, and I made a giraffe. <laughs> so what do you got? We add these works. When we do that, the fruit that we produce, Paul describes it as being stinky. Stinky fruit is yucky, right? So what fruit, I mean, think about your week. I had to repent because I produced some stinky fruit this week a little bit, right? I'm like, that wasn't a good representation of Jesus. It wasn't a good representation of the gospel. There was some fruit that was produced by me, a Christ follower, that stunk. And if you looked at the fruit I produced, it would be, that's not gospel fruit. That looks just like the rest of the world who always produces stinky fruit. You know, in the gospel, this is what we have to come to. There are times when we're going to produce stinky fruit. That's why Jesus died. But when we produce stinky fruit, how quickly are we repenting? How quickly are we buying into the grace and forgiveness that he gives? How quickly are we letting go of the guilt? The longer you hold on to it, the more stinky fruit that you're going to produce. The quicker we believe the gospel, we'll start producing fruit that matters. Even in our moments of repentance and displaying that to others, we can show gospel fruit. So we got two kind of things to process here. Or three, really. Are you calling stinky fruit, stinky fruit? Or are you just, you know, oh, it's so good and it's just rotten. I mean, if that's the case, then you've, you know, <laughs> if you're here today and you have never accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I love you enough to tell you this. You've never tasted good fruit. Everything you've indulged yourself in has been stinky, rotten, death. The only way to experience good Fruit, the good fruits of life. I mean, it's so cool that even God uses food analogies because we get it. I'm from California, the best oranges on the planet. Here, awful. 
Do not buy an orange here. It's not an orange. It's a great analogy, right? It's like, I, don't, I wouldn't even, you don't even want to give that to anybody. It's a sin that they sell it. But it's a good analogy for us. And if you're here today and you've never experienced that, I'm telling you, there is life waiting for you. And it begins now. So if that's you and you're like, man, I, I want that. There's, there's something happening here. Like, don't waste that. Like, you can come talk to me if you like, but it doesn't have to be me. Turn to the person next to you and say, do you know Jesus? And if they say yes, say, Let's, can we chat? Like, let's go get some coffee. I know a couple places. <laughs> and let's sit down and have a conversation. As Christ followers, as the church, what we need to look at is we need to own the fact that there are times when we're going to produce stinky fruit. Happens. What are you doing with it? Are you going to live in guilt the rest of your life? Well, that's not gospel. That's slavery. Is it going to impact everything that you do from this point forward? That person did this to me, but, you know, what do you say? Unforgiveness is the only poison that we take expecting the other person to die. I'm going to ruin my life to spite you. Own the fact that we're going to produce some stinky fruit. And then do the right thing with it. Gospel it. Say it, own it, repent, gospel, move on, start producing good fruit again. I, I think for some reason there's this expectation that, oh my goodness, I, I've produced stinky fruit and I, I, it's all over for me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? That's why Jesus died. That's why we constantly look to the cross and the resurrection. The cross reminds us of our stinky fruit that's happening all the time. The resurrection reminds us of the hope that we have to not have to live in it anymore. The gospel's cool. Last question, what, do you want your, what, what kind of fruit do you want to produce this week? And what needs to change to produce it? Most of the time, it's here. Okay, I, I'm... I'll end with this. The church has a very bad habit of saying that the reason we're producing stinky fruit is because of somebody else. You made me mad. Nobody can make you mad. Nobody can. You make yourself mad. You made me do, nobody makes you do anything. America, you do that. So it starts here. What kind of fruit do you want to produce? And then you ask Jesus to give you the grace to produce it. And then when you fail, you repent, you move on, you start producing fruit again. We're gonna sing one more song and I just wanna give you guys some time to process. Like, I don't know what the Holy Spirit's done in here. I don't, I don't know what, I know what he's done in my, in my heart. Um, some of you need to respond by saying it's time to actually live and I need to 
learn more about or put my faith and trust in Jesus. Some of you need to stop being children and applying the gospel only to your salvation and start living out the life that you've been given. And some of you, your week looked phenomenal and you just need to celebrate the fact that this week the Lord used you to produce some awesome fruit and ask him to help you do it again. It's what's so cool about the gospel. Everybody kind of sits in a different place and we all can apply it the exact same. The diseases look different, but the remedy is always the same. So what do you need to do? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of life. Lord, first I want to pray for anybody in this room right now who has never given their life to Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would remove that heart of stone, that you would give them a heart of flesh, that you would give them the ability to believe Lord, that your light would pierce the darkness. Lord, I ask everything in me that not a single person would leave here without new life in Jesus. So Lord, break hearts. Whatever needs to happen, Lord. And Father, for your church, I pray that we would truly grasp the gospel, not only on a personal level, but to the point where you do purify us on a daily basis. Show us the issues. Show us what we're adding to the gospel and burdening ourselves with. Show us where we're not celebrating truth or we're compromising. And then Lord, give us the ability to repent and move us forward. Lord, I pray that what's produced this week by this church would be sweet, smelling, desirable fruit for you. And Lord, we want that to be for your glory and nothing more. And we thank you for that privilege. In Jesus' name, amen.